0: welcome to the Wards Auto Podcast. I am David Kiley, Senior Editor of Wards Auto and your host. Hydrogen power for transportation and mobility has been talked about my entire 40-year career covering the mobility industry, but it has always been said to be 20 years away. Well, I think we're here now. In the next 20 years, we are going to see the scaling up and expansion of hydrogen supply and demand. Why do I say that? Well, for one thing, the U.S. government and California state government are on track with mandates that snap in in the next decade between 2030 and 2040 that essentially seek to replace diesel. And in Europe, the EU is scaling up hydrogen power in an attempt to wean themselves gradually off Russian oil and gas for geopolitical reasons. It is a pretty widely accepted principle that batteries can replace any vehicle that runs on gasoline, but hydrogen-powered fuel cells are a better substitute for diesel than batteries. Why is that? Well, because the mass and weight of batteries that are needed to move semi-trucks and their loads down the road is viewed as pretty inefficient. Now, not everybody agrees with this, of course. Elon Musk of Tesla is developing battery-operated semi-trucks, as are some of the other truck manufacturers, to hedge their bets. The idea with hydrogen is that compressed hydrogen tanks power a fuel cell stack that in turn powers the vehicle. The great benefit of hydrogen is that water vapor is the only thing coming out of the tailpipe. The controversy, however, is how to produce enough hydrogen, scale it up with clean, green, sustainable sources of energy, namely wind and solar, but also nuclear. And anytime you say nuclear power, there will be controversy, debate, and disagreement. Now, most hydrogen produced today is produced from fossil fuels. So that kind of defeats the purpose, right? But, and this is a big but, the idea behind expanding the applications of hydrogen is to build up the market and demand for hydrogen, and on a parallel course, increase the supply of hydrogen created from wind, solar, and nuclear, and increase the supply of so-called blue hydrogen, which is where you create hydrogen from fossil fuels like natural gas, but you sequester the emissions from that. Now, why are we talking about all this this week? Well, because the government just identified hydrogen production hubs across the US, investing some $7 billion in it. Now, on top of that, there is more than $50 billion in the US being invested in various hydrogen applications for supply and demand from stationary power stations at ports that will power cargo ships while they are at port. Instead of having to idle their diesel engines, new housing developments powered by hydrogen fuel cells instead of diesel, semi trucks from companies like Nikola, Mac, Volvo, Daimler, and others. There is even investment in short haul planes being powered by hydrogen fuel cells instead of jet fuel, and on and on. And of course, there are a few hydrogen fuel cell passenger cars out there in small volumes. Like Hyundai's Nexo. And Honda has had the Clarity sedan, and next year it will start producing a hydrogen powered CRV crossover. And Ford, GM, and Stellantis are all developing fuel cell powered super duty pickups. Now, when we get back from this message from our sponsor, American Axle, we will talk with Tom Stevenson, founder, chairman, and CEO of Pajarito Powder a supplier to companies operating in the fuel cell space. Now, Tom is about the most knowledgeable person I know about hydrogen news and developments, and he's going to share his perspective and answer questions about these new hydrogen hubs and what it all means.
1: This podcast is brought to you by American Axle and Manufacturing. AAM is designing, engineering, and manufacturing award-winning vehicle technologies to power a more sustainable future. Their team is pushing the boundaries of disruption all around the world with over 80 global locations in 18 countries. To learn more and join the team that is bringing the future faster, visit aam.com careers. So, I'm
0: here with uh, Tom Stevenson, who is the CEO and chairman and a co founder of Pajarito Powder in New Mexico. And uh, the reason we asked Tom to come on the podcast is that he is super knowledgeable about the hydrogen economy and how it's rolling out. His company has a place in the ecosystem of, of the developing hydrogen economy from a tech standpoint. Thank you, Tom, so much for being with us. It's my pleasure, David. I'm delighted to be here. So before we get into some of the news around hydrogen, talk to our audience, please, about your company, Pajarito Powder, what it does, and kind of what your business model is within the hydrogen economy.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we're Pajarito Powder is a developer and manufacturer of advanced catalysts for the hydrogen economy. So what does that mean exactly? Well, when you talk about the hydrogen economy, you may be talking about fuel cells, which take hydrogen and oxygen from the air and in a direct chemical reaction, turn that into electricity uh, to run a car, to run anything else that you might need. And it also includes electrolysis, which which is green hydrogen production that involves the opposite reaction, taking water and splitting it into hydrogen and oxygen so that you have the hydrogen available for usage, for storage, for transportation, and so forth. When you actually build those systems, if you actually start to pull them apart, all right, and, and look at what's inside, in order to make the chemical reactions go, you need to have a catalyst. And this is a pretty, pretty direct uh, chemistry 101 uh, type of issue that a lot of different chemical reactions require these kinds of catalysts. And one of the key things, though, in our industry is that the catalysts that are are overwhelmingly the most effective are from an area of elements known as the precious metal groups, and specifically platinum and iridium. And these are very rare and very expensive. Most folks know about platinum a little bit, but iridium is actually uh, six or seven times more expensive than platinum and iridium has a further problem that there's not very much of it in the world so little of it that for us to achieve all the goals that have been targeted for the deployment of green hydrogen over the course of the next 7 or 8 years we don't have enough of it in the world unless folks figure out ways to develop better catalyst materials to go into these fuel cells or electrolyzers and that's what we do is we make those catalysts that will allow us to use less precious metal and ultimately produce more efficient, longer lasting, and ultimately cheaper systems for fuel cells, for electrolyzers, that will help to bring forward the uh, hydrogen economy. You you can think about it a little bit like an Intel Inside, if you want, we're a pretty key component, but we are a component provider um, that then sells into the people that ultimately make these fuel cells and electrolyzer systems that help to drive the hydrogen economy.
0: Does your product Make it so that you, the automakers or, or the, the companies that are making fuel cell stacks, et cetera, can use less platinum and iridium, or does this also help in finding other sources of catalysts, like other other metals or even t- things that are synthetic? That so it's it, Yeah, it's a little bit of both. But
2: fundamentally, what we're able to do with our catalysts is reduce the amount of platinum by as much as 50%. And in the case of iridium, with some of our developmental products, decreases the amount of iridium by a similar sort of 50 or 60% number. Mm-hmm. Now, the way that we do that is, is with different sorts of material sets that ultimately don't take the place of those precious metals by themselves, but make those precious metals far more effective in the work that they're doing inside the systems. So it really is a combination of both of those things. We're, we're reducing fundamentally, we're reducing the amount that you need, and that means lower cost, which is what the end customers for us ultimately want to see. But it does involve using some substitutes and other types of materials to to be able to achieve those goals.
0: As I said in the in the in the intro, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is that you know clearly, uh, you know, I visited New Mexico. About a year ago, and right. we got a lot of uh, information from you know the stakeholders around New Mexico, which of course is a is a hub of uh, research around hydrogen, going back to you know World War II, uh, and still is a a major hub of research. You just seem to know you know all the ins and outs, uh, and and analyze the the news around hydrogen and can interpret it for us. So the big news in the last week is that the uh, $7 billion that uh, the U.S. government allocated in 2022 to stimulate the building of hydrogen production hubs, they were assigned a week ago. And unfortunately, the, the consortium of states around New Mexico did not win the day, but can you talk to us about your analysis of where the government decided to put the the hubs and, and why you think they chose those spots?
2: Well you know it's interesting uh because first of all the the department of energy goes through a process where they they down select and, and they had 70 or 80 initial inquiries that they sort of took down to over 30 that they asked to submit formal proposals, right? So there were over 30 potential candidates out there to participate uh, ultimately as hydrogen hubs. And we knew that they were going to do sort of anywhere from from six to ten uh, hubs in, in total to, to be able to make sure that they got significant enough placement of dollars to have it be meaningful, but also to try to get some spread across the country. And I think one of the things that you know that really stood out to me about the winning bids and, and just the process in general, was that it was able to achieve what I think was one of the government's fundamental goals, which was to get leverage on the dollars that, that they were going to put out uh, into the growth of the hydrogen economy. And what we saw in the announcement last week was that in addition to the $7 billion that's coming from the federal government, there's pledged over $40 billion worth of private sector investment to go with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the proposals required that there be a minimum of a one-to-one match, but you know here we're looking at something that is almost in the area of a six-to-one uh, match and puts the total investment into hydrogen at some $47 plus billion plus And that's one of the things that I think is very exciting about it. And I'm sure that one of the areas that, you know, that the government was looking very closely at was that level of
0: commitment uh, from the private sector within the hub areas. I was surprised, as maybe you were, although tell me if you were surprised that Northern New Mexico, which I know from the presentations we got a year ago, they see about ten thousand semi trucks stopping in Northern New Mexico per day to refuel on diesel. And I would have thought that, that geographically speaking, that that would have been a slam dunk selection because the 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 first wave of scaling up hydrogen transportation is going to be semi trucks because the diesel is being you know mandated out of existence by 2040 uh, as far as transportation goes and also stationary power so what was your what's your take on why northern that consortium that would have put a hydrogen hub near uh, you know, northern New Mexico, where all the trucks come through, did, didn't didn't get it.
2: Well, obviously, so our company is based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So, you know, as, as someone who who lives in New Mexico, I was disappointed, uh, as all of us were, that that we weren't selected. And I thought that the proposal that the Western Interstate Hydrogen Hub Coalition had put out it was one of the first ones to have a, a multi state feature to it that included New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and, and Wyoming. And I-40, which is what you're referring to, is one of the major thoroughfares, the old Route 66, that, that has truck traffic that goes uh, from west to east and east to west uh, across, crisscrossing across the country. And if you even look more broadly than that, that particular coalition included I-10, I-40, I-70, I-80, which are all major hubs to bring goods, particularly from the west coast where they may come in by sea, uh, mm-hmm. to get to other populated areas further further east. I can't tell you why that proposal wasn't one of the ones that was a winner. Um, you know, my guess and my hope is that it it comes down to being in a circumstance that's a, that's a little like college admissions at a, at a competitive college where they have more applicants that are qualified to ultimately participate than they're going to be able to, to accept. And, and so then they just have to start making choices you know, based on certain characteristics. I can tell you that one of the things that the government's definitely interested in is is to see some diversification of different industries that might be served by hydrogen that go beyond transportation. Mm -hmm. And whether that's uh, kind of the focus on things like shipping in the Pacific Northwest, whether it's uh, focusing on the production of green ammonia for the use uh, ultimately to be used in fertilizers for farming uh, in the Midwest or leveraging some of the existing infrastructure that already exists along the Gulf Coast. I think what we saw in all the winning ones was a very tight focus on particular industries and a, and a breadth of industries across the hubs to be able to ultimately, to be able to support a wider growth of hydrogen that wasn't just about transportation. And I do know that, that with all of the, the hub proposals, and this was certainly true of, of the one that included New Mexico, that there was more than just the idea of refueling stations there was much more around different opportunities to uh, to be able to generate hydrogen different Mm -hmm. technologies uh for producing hydrogen whether doing it through green hydrogen production and electrolysis or perhaps uh through steam methane reforming coupled with carbon capture which is known as blue hydrogen and um also doing some workforce development as well so there were a lot of different pieces uh, that ultimately contributed to that, and and I think you look at the regions that that won, and and you know there's there's nothing that I can look at and say negative about
0: ultimately those choices, other than the fact that we weren't one of them. Right. So, so you said that in addition to the governments, um, and it in terms of the actual subsidy for uh, for setting up the hubs. I think it's more like six because there was another billion that's sort of allocated for, for for other stuff. So the the actual production or the or the building of these hydrogen hubs. But but to your point, uh, there's forty seven billion in private investment coming. So because of the commercial opportunity in northern New Mexico, where, where you know as you point out, you all this you know, semi truck traffic. It doesn't mean that we won't get a hydrogen hub up there, right? Because the private sources may well decide that you know it's a great business opportunity to to put one there.
2: Well, that's that's exactly right, and and I can't comment on some of the other states within the Western Interstate Hydrogen Hub Alliance, but I can tell you that in New Mexico, uh, the governor is and um, the head of the Department of the Environment and others within her cabinet have. Come out and reaffirm their commitment uh, to the development of hydrogen projects. And as has been reported in the local media here, whether it's the Albuquerque uh, Albuquerque Journal or the Albuquerque Business First, uh, you know they've both talked to some of the participants in projects. That we're going to res- be the beneficiaries of receiving some of that funds, and and largely the view is that you know, they're going to move forward th- with those projects. It, it means that there's a, a hole in their in their financing that they're going to have to go out and find uh, other mechanisms to fill, and they're going to start working on that and are already starting thinking about where may- maybe other other sources. And I think that so so I think the commitment to hydrogen certainly here in New Mexico is continues to be strong which we're delighted to see, and I think that we'll see that across the country among some of the other proposals that, and I don't know what those proposals were, but ones that fell into that category of being qualified, but not ultimately the ones that are selected, where those people will go and, and look to other potential resources, and, and we may see yet some some further leveraging and developing of of other, you know, hydrogen hubs or regions of activity that, that will yeah. be growing with hydrogen over the next couple of years.
0: So one of the applications that I was kind of fascinated by uh, when we got all our presentations last year was, um, was port side stationary hydrogen. And and just to give the listeners a little background, uh, just just a thumbnail of the maritime issue around hydrogen is that there's a statistic that I believe is accurate you know, that's sort of out there and frequently used, which is that one cargo ship, one, you know, major giant cargo ship in a year's time, uh, just one of them produces the same amount of uh, CO2 into the atmosphere as 50 million cars, you know, which is astonishing. And so if you're, you know, the port of, in the ports in in California, San Diego and in LA and, and the port of Portland, and then on the east coast, new york, new jersey in in that area you've got a situation where all of these cargo ships come in and they dock and they have to keep their diesel engines running portside and so that throws a lot of emissions and you know and and very, very dirty air into those port areas which are already suffering, you know, from smog, you know, long-term shipping. So by putting, by building these big stationary hydrogen generators port side, all these ships, you know, when they're, when they're built can then connect to those while they're in, while they're port side, you know, being, you know, unloading and, and getting reloaded and things, which I, I frankly don't know how many days that usually takes, you know, a major, cargo ship, but I'm guessing it's it's a few days anyway, of, of just, you know, putting that massive amount of diesel emissions in, in, into the air. So these are some of the things I think consumers, you know, but, but the larger public doesn't really get about the potential of, of hydrogen. And then the other area is stationary uh, hydrogen power for new housing development which you know of course get built all the time. So, you know, not putting new housing developments on the grid, instead putting putting fuel cells to to power them. So, so, I want to ask you about the controversy over uh the sources of hydrogen in a minute, but before we do that, give me your drone's eye view of of where the hydrogen the con- the progress and the hydrogen economy stands right now.
2: Right. So first of all, I'll point out drones can run on hydrogen as well, uh, hydrogen <laughs> fuel cells as well. But uh, you go. Well, I think that one of the things that, that is very exciting and what, what we're seeing is that um, there is a, a faster growth in the investments being made into and deployment of hydrogen generation. And that's because there are different applications uh, for hydrogen, right? So we've talked about the the shipping is sort of one subset of um, of the transportation industry and a really really key one because you know you talked about how polluting the the, the uh, large ships are, but just when they sit at port, one of those freighters uses a megawatt of electricity which is the sort of equivalent of 200 houses mm-hmm. and they have all these trucks and other things that are moving around and and they create these sort of centers where there's a huge amount of of diesel particulate uh, emissions in in those local communities and um and and one of the things that the state of California has done um the California resources board came out in april and they set a schedule for the the sunsetting or effectively the you know the outlying and the restricting of new vehicles that were not zero emissions. And so when you talk about something called drayage trucks, which are the trucks that run around the ports,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you in California, you will not be able to buy and use a new diesel drayage truck next year. Mm-hmm. 2024, right? Which is now only just a few months away.
0: Not only that, but They've had, uh, as I recall, in January of uh, of this year, you could not register a vehicle pr- that was older than two thousand ten, right? I can't speak to that
2: specific okay. statistics. So I, I don't know, but but that would be consistent with California's leadership in making the move towards towards zero emission vehicles. And part of that is also the requirement that you have newer vehicles that will obviously be cleaner. Um, and produce fewer emissions. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't, like I said, I can't comment on that specifically, but I think that would be right.
0: Let's talk about just interest of time. Sure. In all of this activity around hydrogen, the hubs, et cetera, there is a strong contingent of environmentalists that are ringing the bell uh, because of the where we are right now with the production of hydrogen and so, some of the beneficiaries of of this uh, of this government money are companies like Exxon, for example. Yes, because most of the hydrogen produced today is what we call gray, you know, which is essentially being generated from fossil fuels. And then uh, you touched on it earlier: blue hydrogen is uh, hydrogen generated from fossil fuels, but the emissions are sequestered. And then green, and that's the goal, is to generate as much hydrogen with power from solar and wind. And and one of the interesting things about the the announcement a week ago was that there was, you know, a bunch of talk in the press release and and the announcement about about nuclear. So nuclear, of course, is very controversial on, on its own between environmentalists and industry. But, uh, but the government, you know, was very, very. So that some of the beneficiaries of, of this was was going to be the nuclear power plants and the and the nuclear companies. So, talk about can and how fast do you think green energy, uh, green hydrogen, can be progressed and scaled up? I think it's coming really fast
2: is my going to be my short answer for that. And it's it's actually coming at a faster pace than a lot of people initially anticipated. And that's certainly true internationally, where a lot of locales are uh, sort of leapfrogging and stepping past the, the production of hydrogen from fossil fuels to the green hydrogen production. Europe is probably the Best and biggest example of that, which fits very naturally to the fact that they don't have much in the way of fossil fuels. They don't have oil. They don't have gas. They have oil in the North Sea, but they don't don't have much natural gas, and they can certainly not going to buy it from the Russians anymore. And as a result, they've they've moved very very aggressively and very quickly towards the move of the green hydrogen. And and why that's impactful for us in the United States is that the the further deployment of these types of systems the further development of the technology brings down the cost brings up the efficiencies and starts to make it more competitive around all the markets within the world but even here in the united states uh, you're seeing some you know some very significant moves in the development of green hydrogen and and it's coming along i think faster than uh, perhaps most people expected despite the fact that we have such an abundance of natural gas here in the United States and huge industries that have been built around that. Um, It will take time for those systems to ultimately be deployed. But one of the interesting things is that in some of the hubs, as you pointed out, some of the hubs are focused on using some of the blue hydrogen, um, but there's also several of them that are exclusively focused on green hydrogen, such as the state of California. And that's something that California has also done you know, with their support and subsidies for the creation of the consumer refueling stations uh, that they have there in the state, that all of them have to come from green hydrogen production. I think that we have to think a bit about, you know, getting from A to B. And and all of this is, you know, is progress towards a move. Uh, where by building out the hydrogen infrastructure, uh, whether it's the transportation in terms of pipelines and trucking that can take hydrogen that was generated blue or green um, or pink, which is how it's described if it's electrolysis uh, that's coming originally from from nuclear energy. I don't know where that one came from, but uh, but there it is. And, um, and and so the refueling stations, the the trucking, the capability, the pipelines, A lot of those other uses will build up on the demand side as the supply side continues to make that conversion from blue hydrogen to to green. And and what we're going to see, one of the other big pieces around hydrogen deployment is some incentives in the form of subsidies that exist in the came out of the Inflation Reduction Act. Mm. And those require that the hydrogen be produced in a in a clean some in a clean format in order to get the full subsidy. And so there's going to be a lot of attention paid on the specific language around that to make sure that that that, that, that provides the appropriate incentives to to move towards towards green. But I think that the essence of your first question was, you know, how quickly is the green coming along? Um we're actually seeing Certainly in our case, for our company, we're seeing tremendous increases in demand for our products as they support green hydrogen production. Um, and a lot of that is domestically here within the United States. And so I think it's one of those things where we're going to continue to see, you know, we may be on the on the cusp of, of the real step up uh, in the hockey stick of
0: growth in that area. Yeah, I read uh, there was a, a environmentalist professor at, at a university. I, I read a quote from from him in the last uh, last day or two, where you know he was saying that we have to be very careful about this because the you know the easiest way to ramp up is with natural gas, and that that process puts more methane into the atmosphere, which is which is definitely not a good thing. And so the concern, and, and I think it's legit, is that we're going to get too comfortable using natural gas to uh, create hydrogen and not progress the green sources fast enough. But I recognize the fact that we, this came up in our electrification conference th- this week. And and I said, you know, you, you can't do these things one after the other. You can't wait until there's an you know, there's north of fifty percent of hydrogen production is green before you implement you, you know these things. It all has to be progressed at once. You, you know, because otherwise you'll never get there and you and you have to create supply and demand along the way, you know, for the end uses, like if a housing development with a hundred houses is going to install hydrogen fuel cells and not put themselves on the grid, They've got to have a reliable source of hydrogen, and so if it's gray or blue now, you've got that those customers in place, and so that creates more demand to to develop the green hydrogen. And a lot of, I think, a lot of people with with uh, agendas, you know, will will bring, you know, kind of trying to make this argument that, well, wow, we should we don't need to do this now because this over here is not ready. Blah, blah, blah. But it, it all has to be progressed at once. Am I wrong? Not at all. And I to me, this is an
2: example of being very careful about, you know, you know kind of letting the, the perfect be the be the enemy of the good. Right. That, um, what we know is your point about your point about supply and demand is very much at the center of this discussion because one of the questions that has always come up in the transportation industry has been the question of sort of the chicken and egg. How do we get refueling infrastructure when there aren't enough vehicles on the road? How do we get enough vehicles on the road if there's not the refueling infrastructure to go with it? Now, I think that where the industry is moving right now that that I'm very excited about that solves some of that is the fact that trucks present a uniquely positive opportunity for the use of hydrogen heavy trucks over the road 18 wheelers class 8 trucks and because those are typically fleet owned they have the ability to to have a very different business model around around how you build out the refueling infrastructure but but back to your to your other point about about the blue I think versus the green is that there I understand I do understand the concern and blue hydrogen is not as environmentally positive as green hydrogen is. I don't think there's a, there's a valid argument. You could say that's not the case, but it's better um, than gray, <laughs> but it's way better than gray and it's way better than Brown, yeah. um, which comes from refineries today. And so um, the ability to move towards that is all about taking us down the curve, which is, which is the point is to, to be able to ultimately reduce uh, our our emissions. And so as the electrolyzer technologies continue to improve, as they continue to come down in cost, as they continue to be deployed, and, and as I said, it's, it's not that people aren't interested in that. Frankly, it's probably going to be for some time a question of the electrolyzer companies building them as fast as they can uh, to be able to support the market demand that already exists then that's going to continue to, to move us uh, ultimately in that direction. And in the meantime, what we're doing is transitioning all of these other industries. You talk about stationary power, which is, which is a great example. There's a lot of industrial processes that can be able to use hydrogen as well. The production of steel, the production of ammonia, the production of concrete, uh, all of which can, can be dramatically improved in terms of their environmental impact by the use of by the use of hydrogen and so much so that the the international organization the hydrogen council in their studies that they've done showing how they believe the breakdown of hydrogen usage will be as we get out towards 2050 is that only 25 percent of the hydrogen is going to be in transportation the other 75 is going to be in store long-term storage it's going to be in being able to use it for industrial applications as well as stationary and so forth and so you know, what What that says is 25% still the biggest single chunk, mm-hmm. but hydrogen is going to be used for a whole lot of things. And so our ability to generate that hydrogen and then allow people to make the transition on the demand side will
0: make it a lot easier to make that move on the supply side as well. Well, that's great. Thank you so much, Tom. We're going to have you back for sure. And we're going to talk more about hydrogen in this podcast series because- two of the really interesting uh, things I've seen in the news lately are, you know, prototypes out there for hydrogen powered trains and hydrogen powered ships. Yes. um, Which because of that number I mentioned earlier about diesel powered cargo ships, um, hydrogen powered cargo ships and, and cruise ships and things like that, you know, will have a huge impact on the, on the climate. So thank you so much for sharing your, your time and your expertise and, and analysis on uh, on you know on the placement of the hubs and kind of where where we're at right now. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Dave.
1: This podcast was brought to you by American Axle and Manufacturing. AAM is designing, engineering, and manufacturing award-winning vehicle technologies to power a more sustainable future. Their team is pushing the boundaries of disruption all around the world, with over 80 global locations in 18 countries. To learn more and join the team that is bringing the future faster, visit aam.com careers.
0: Well, thanks to Tom Stevenson for those great insights. Remember, please think about subscribing to the Ward Zotto podcast on your favorite platform, like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, but you can always play it right off the Wards Auto website when you see our article written around each episode. You'll see a link in the article to play the episode right off your phone, laptop, or tablet. I'm your host, David Kiley. Graham Mitchell is our engineer. And until next time, enjoy the ride.